Recording in progress. All right, everybody, Life Unraveled podcast here. Uh, Going to be sitting down with Steve Hisco. Is, is this how you pronounce your last name, correct? Yeah, it is. Okay, well, uh, so we've had um, we've had a Sambo Steve on the podcast, uh, Stephen Kofer, but not a Sensei Steve. So um, excited. I kept thinking about that for some reason. <laughs> I'm like, yes, Steve, <laughs> Sambo Steve. We've had, had a couple of Steves. Uh, but uh, I really do appreciate you taking the time, you know. Um, I'll tell – so I've had Ari on the podcast I think three times um, for, for different reasons. I mean, I grew up in jiu-jitsu being a white belt. Ari was like the first dude I ever watched you do jiu-jitsu uh, like in an instructional format, you know. And I remember also like first time I talked to him on the podcast and, you know, he, was, he would show – it was Japanese jiu-jitsu, uh, you know. And like I would see it's like, oh, are these, you know – I've seen some of these terms, you know, in Aikido. I wasn't really at the time and even on through my colored belts sure, you know, what his background was and then heard it that he did Japanese jiu-jitsu and, you know, started following more. I told you uh, before we uh, set up this podcast that uh, Keith Owen had been on and, you know, got, got to talking with Ari about his Japanese jiu-jitsu background. I have an instructor that's uh, fifth degree in our state. And he's he's done some Japanese jujitsu, and uh, man, I just honestly talk, uh, thought about having you on the podcast, talking uh, to you about this uh, topic probably twenty times. So I just I had to reach <laughs> out. No, my, my pleasure being here. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, well, man, uh, let's just uh, let's get right in. I've got some questions. I mean, I would say in my state, Arkansas, that's where we're from, Southern United States. My instructor, who's it was the first jujitsu black belt in Arkansas, um, I think in 01, he got his jujitsu way before I started training. I started training in 06, got his black belt. But then, uh, you know, he had done Japanese jujitsu for a long time. But I man, he's like the only guy around me that I knew that did Japanese jujitsu in any form, you know. And I, I've met more people uh, over the years going to trade shows and conferences and camps. But, um, how did you get into Japanese jiu-jitsu? Like, what what could you what could you tell somebody about it that was maybe in my shoes that didn't? I only sure. knew what my instructor was doing, you know. So, so I, I started, started in 1975. 1975. I was uh, seven years old, and I'd come home from school, you know, complaining to my parents that maybe I got pushed around a little bit many times. And uh, uh, there was, there was a, a jiu-jitsu school uh, in Ottawa is where I grew up. So they brought me there, and um, that was on the 29th of November, 1975. So I just started my 48th year in um, Japanese jiu-jitsu. Um, the, the name of our style is Kanryu jiu-jitsu, which is a Canadian system of jiu-jitsu. The uh, founder is a gentleman by the name of George Sylvain. He was a military police officer. And when he retired from the military, he um, started teaching at the Algonquin College in the Ottawa area in uh, a law and security program for college kids that wanted to get into policing. And uh, so, yeah, so he was a black belt in karate. He was a brown belt in judo and had did some boxing and military combatives. And he kind of put this system together in the uh, 60s and called it Kanryu. So uh, Canadian style of jujitsu. Yeah, you know, that's one thing. So I, um, for four years, taught uh, history at a college. Um, I, have, I have a master's degree in history of fascinated by the topic um but man i will say uh you know so many people in my research fit this kind of mold you know i've trained with uh bill superfoot wallace uh you know had all this military experience um and in a little different route but then you, you see a lot of people like like ari and i believe i've seen yourself too like the law enforcement side 
getting into some of that. Um, uh, one of our instructors here is the chief of police, and um, but he's a judo and aikido guy, and like some of his older instructors, you know, come from this military background of the you know the post World War II, but really, really you say more like post Korean War uh, era that, but they were stationed in places like Okinawa or uh, Japan uh, in the post-war years. And I mean, it's interesting how, uh, as a historian for me, how some of those cross-cultural connections, like how how you get Japanese jiu-jitsu in Canada. That's Right. Yeah, yeah, for us it was, you know, came through a, a judo kind of background. And then, like I said, with the military combatives and he put this system together. Um, so that's where I started. Like I said, I was seven years old, didn't really know where, um, obviously when you're a kid, where it's going to take you. Um, but my father joined the dojo a couple of years after I had started. So he was, you know, one of those parents that would drop the kids off and stick around and watch. And eventually it was like, you know what, I want to give this a try. And, um, so he did. And we just kind of stuck with it. We got our black belts at the same time in 1983. We got our fifth degree black belt at the same time. And um, he operated a, a school in the Ottawa area. And I had moved out close to the Vancouver, uh, British Columbia area in 89 when I joined the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. And I've operated out here um, since that time so close to 30 years i've had my school here in in british columbia for about 30 years so uh funny observation i added you on facebook uh i don't know a year or so ago probably but i see you posting all the time at the fitness center you're like you, you you're working out you you you're on the bench you're doing dumbbells or something uh I'd, i myself also have a fitness center membership um i did not go today uh, schedule got busier and I thought it was going to but one one thing that's interesting to me like why I remark on that is when I tell people I work out at the fitness center because I own a gym they're like oh, that makes no sense but man the longer I do martial arts um and I get plenty of activity here at the gym but the longer I do martial arts um and the older I'm getting I'm 35 it's not like I'm a aging out too bad but, um, man, I just find like the little things like walking and stretching and strength and conditioning are so much more imperative. But also, I think because of my age, I still have uh, I have a lot of students that are a little younger than me, s fewer, I would say, that are older. But it's weird. I, so many people come to the gym for martial arts and that's kind of their fitness. So it's like a, a disconnect. So when I see another martial arts guy working out, I'm like, oh, good job. <laughs> For me, I started um, probably in 2015, really kind of going to the gym. I had broken an ankle. I was a little bit heavier at the time. And I just thought, you know what? It's time to kind of switch this around a little bit and look after my own fitness. I, you know, teaching is not really training. So I, I teach about 17, 18 hours a week with the structure of our school. So I, I get a lot of teaching time, but I don't get a lot of my own personal training mat time. So getting up early, you know, I still have a young son. I've got a 25, 19 and a 10 year old and I want to be around for a long time. And um, I'm going to be 55 this year. And I just thought, you know what, I need to do something for myself never been a gym guy i had um a couple of guys that i worked out with in the morning they are have moved on and transferred from where we work so now it's getting up the mental challenge of um you know of getting out of bed in the morning and getting it done so that perseverance and consistency yeah now just building it into the routine i was about you know i'll tell you it was uh it was before the pandemic but I was about 30, 31, and I got uh, bronchitis real bad, and I got over it, and then it came back. Like It's like I didn't kick it all the way, and it came back, and then it was a little worse, um, maybe even a touch of pneumonia. Like I, I, I got it under control, but, man, it's just like a mortalizing experience. I, I was remember laying in bed, and I could not breathe. 
and it, it scared me. Like I was having a little panic and it, it just, it's kind of like what you're saying. I, my wife and I have been, um, we're in family planning stages, but haven't had kids yet and, and are trying, but that seems to be a big shift for a lot of people is, is, is family. But for me, I mean, I was just like, man, I'm 30. I, you know, I, I want, I want to have a full life ahead and, and I'm not, it was at a point I'd, I'd stopped competing. I competed a lot in jiu-jitsu through my card belts, but I'd not been competing the last couple of years. I wasn't terribly out of shape either, but just got a touch of being really sick, man. And it, it made me want to really turn things around and start. Every every time before that, the only time I went to the fitness center was to get ready for a fight or something, you know? Right. It, it was not like for wellness. It was just like I had a shift to, to exercise for wellness. So, and my yeah. back was hurting too. Absolutely, right? And I mean, with students, you want to, you know, show them a good example and be a role model and whatnot. So, you know, it starts at home and same thing, being a role model for my kids and showing them that fitness is important. And so that, that's kind of why I do it. And really, the only reason I get up at 4.30 in the morning is because that's the only time I have to myself to be able to kind of get out there and, and get it done. So. No, that's the same exact routine for me. I'm not teaching college anymore. It's my first semester um, not doing that in the last four or five years. But, um, man, when I – like that was – I was making that transition when I just started teaching full-time at a college and running this gym, 450 students now. We probably had – around oh 350 or so then at that time but uh you know it's just like oh well i don't have time to work out yeah i, I was yeah. literally just became aware that i was making the same excuses everybody else was and the same reasons what you said too is like oh i'm a martial arts instructor like i was like it wasn't like i was getting terribly out of shape but man you know like i had old injuries and they would flare up and and i've had way less of that you know, like there's a period of two or three years there. And then like right on the tail end of competing uh, where I was like always jacked up and, and I've just had less of that, you know? So it's definitely, um, definitely been a benefit for my life. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, let's just, uh, how did you come into contact with Ari? Right. So like, that's the only only re reason I know who you are, the only reason I know who Keith Owen is, who went on to be a big inspiration to me. Like, I remember uh, Keith gave me my entry report form. I remember messaging him just out of the blue and and saying, I need this entry report form. And then he called me and was like, dude, why do you need this? Like, uh, like, can I, how can I help you? Like, with this, like, you know, right questions you got it's just like man it was just a really cool thing and then like he followed up with me like later too was like hey how'd that how'd that turn out you know like and but i just like i remember seeing on ari's page and and uh, uh, keith showing stuff and, and then i know you also trained with keith it, 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 if my research is correct and uh, yeah but just some really cool connections there man like how did all that come come to be so um, probably in the mid-90s, uh, Ari lives over in Victoria, which is uh, just across the, uh, say, across the channel, or he's on Vancouver Island, so not too far away. And I had started a provincial organization here in British Columbia for jiu-jitsu, and mostly Japanese jiu-jitsu at the time, because Brazilian jiu-jitsu wasn't sort of a, a big deal back in the mid nineties here in British Columbia anyways. And um, the idea was just to get like-minded jujitsu people together uh, for people who maybe didn't have an avenue for advancement. And there wasn't a lot of Japanese jujitsu in BC at the time. And Ari was one of those guys on the Island. And eventually we kind of connected, he came over and um, we just kind of, you know, met up that way. And once the organization kind of dissolved because we all had organ other organizations that we belonged to as well, we just kind of kept our friendship. And when he started with the um, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and mostly getting when he got involved with uh, Keith Owen, um, that's where I kind of sort of jumped into the 
Brazilian jiu-jitsu. That would have been about eight, nine years ago, I guess. Um, because I was just kind of into my own Japanese jiu-jitsu or Kanryu jiu-jitsu at the time. So I decided to get into the Brazilian jiu-jitsu more to kind of just expand my own knowledge, add some information to my school, uh, be able to provide something a little bit different to my students as well. And um, that's when I met Keith through Ari and sort of joined up with Team Rhino at that time. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, cool. I, I remember too, like, I was the first video I saw of Keith um, was like he's showing side mount escape. He's talking about punching the person in the face to get the cross face. Like, it's just like the way he communicated. I mean, I was like a blue belt at the time, you know, but like, man, there was just such, even at that time, so such a limited amount of information on YouTube. I mean, I remember even when I, I wrote my master's thesis on um, martial arts being a continually reinvented tradition, but really I, I dealt with like Cold War era differences between Eastern and Western societies and how they use martial arts for military traditions and sp sport and, you know, uh, but it, it's... Um, you know, I just like I've seen the change. It's almost like uh, the amount of information for jujitsu or just martial arts in general has gone from like you know dial up to artificial intelligence level. You know, right. like, I, this like my modem used to make these funny sounds, and now like I, bam, Keith Owens in, my, in my, on my phone in my living room this morning. You know, and I just like Ari's just kind of always a standout to me. Uh, just because, man, it's my infancy, like core memories of some of the first jujitsu I ever saw. Or like you knew everybody that was watching jujitsu was like watching his stuff, too. You know, yeah. Like the first viral guy. Um, but, man, that is um, like one thing I, you know, as I was coming up and I, I don't think I ever really answered the question for myself, just kind of came to a just different way of understanding things, really. But. With Japanese jiu-jitsu, like, early on, I was always looking at it through the lens of history for, first, like, and then, too, like, trying to compare it to what I was doing. You know, I would go to uh, some camps with my coach, and most of his style, I mean, it's it, pretty deep, but it's a big focus on hand techniques. Um, but I was always trying, like, well, what's the difference in this and, you know, jiu-jitsu, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, or, or, you know, uh, some of this in judo, and... I mean, how do you explain that to, uh, you know, a lay person or a trained person? Like, you're hanging out with uh, people like Keith Owen, uh, who I know did kung fu and, and was, you know, a martial artist, not just a jiu-jitsu guy, I feel like, you know? And, but, I don't know, it's just like I've gone through some evolutions of how I think about Japanese jiu-jitsu. And, I mean, how do you kind of describe it to people when you talk to them about what you So the, yeah, the jiu-jitsu that... Um, that I teach or the stand-up jujitsu that I teach. Um, you know, when I explain to people, we do a lot of the same karate, kicking, punching, stances, you know, and working on that footwork. Um, hold escapes, bear hugs, chokes, uh, full Nelsons. And we do a lot of the same judo throws. Um, and, and the catchphrase in our style is kind of blow, throw, blow. Hit him, throw him, hit him again. So how do you get out of the hold? How do you get him on the ground? And then, you know, either wrap them up in a in a choke or a wrist lock or a controlling after throw technique and then create that distance. Um, so depending on, you know, what you're, what the student is looking for, like in a law enforcement context, then you can, you know, control the person after the fact or from a self-defense context you know create that distance and get the heck out of there um so and like i said we do a lot of the same kicking punching boxing striking skills how much uh emphasis on uh do you guys and i'm sure quite a bit because most martial arts do but uh with kazushi like off balancing um from from holds like that's one thing that i've seen and in, in, i'm really impressed with like, I have a, a showdown in judo, but, like, man, Kazushi is not the easiest for everybody to understand. And, and there are so many, I mean, it's really just eight directions, I guess. But 
the lifting, <laughs> the pulling, the corners, and uh, the timing. But what 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 would you say about Kazushi for your style of Japanese? For our style, um, you know, depending on what the techniques are, I would sort of say our style is more uh, gross motor skills. Like I said, you know, hit, throw, hit, create that distance. Um, you know, Ari and I have another friend. His name is uh, Michael Seamark, and he does Japanese jiu-jitsu, but very traditional Japanese jiu-jitsu. And uh, so really focusing a lot more on the kazushi and breaking balance and, you know, all the fine motor points of sort of Japanese jiu-jitsu, where I would say ours is maybe a little bit more you know, like I said, gross motor skills is more, you know, get them, get them on the ground and, and then go from there. So, you know, um, one thing that's interesting about that, like, um, just how I would say probably, I mean, there's on my research, a lot of different schools, uh, within the umbrella of Japanese jujitsu, but, um, and then, you know, I've, a lot of a lot of them focus on stand up. You'll have obviously some grappling, some more so on striking, some more so on joint locking, and just just based off you know uh, uh, surface research and talking to people. But what is also interesting, you look at like two of like uh, martial artists from like your instructor's era, uh, Bill Wallace and Joe Lewis. Those dudes came out of the same uh, dojo in Okinawa, right? But they went on. I mean, I, I've got to be tested for my second degree with Bill uh, in June and did not get to train with uh, Joe, but my coach uh, is like an eighth degree bite belt under Joe Lewis, trained with him his whole life pretty much. But they, and I know a lot about Joe's system from my coach, but like Joe and Bill, even coming from the same system, the same style, the same dojo at two different times, and then they went on to be best friends later, they have completely different styles. And that's like that's it's always stood out to me because uh, that's one of the things like I can think of evolved my thinking on is like oh Japanese jujitsu it must you know it's all the same yeah you know I think even uh, I look at my dad's sort of inter not interpretation but you know how he did his uh, jujitsu and even though we're you know teaching the same style. You know, he's, uh, well, he just retired last year, but, you know, he taught until he was 77, 76 years old. He's a bigger man. Um, so not a lot of throws, but a lot more takedowns and wrist locks. And whereas I still, you know, use the throws and and uh, add them into our, you know, arsenal type of thing. So I think a lot of times, just depending on what your body can do, you're going to adapt or you know, move around. Yeah, no, that's uh well. And, you know, I think everything we've talked about also, um, striking throws, wrist locks, uh, in one form or another, it's all even in like Kodokan judo. Like you look at Kodokan judo, like, but what's funny is I've never been to a judo class where we did any striking, you know what I'm saying? At all. Not one time. Yeah. Um, but that, that's also what, um, you know, we I've I've had kickboxing fights, MMA fights. We have a boxing club. Like I I've very much started doing MMA and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, but have like tried to branch out into other martial arts: Japanese Jiu-Jitsu, Aikido, it, it, it karate, Taekwondo. Anything I can get a Bill Wallace it's karate system technically, but um, anything I can kind of expand. Um, my viewpoint on striking is like, oh, well, judo's got striking. Oh, Japanese jiu-jitsu's got striking. Um, and it's all, also interesting to me, You, like my original judo instructor, like what you're saying, um, he was a Green Beret in the 60s with uh, the, like the South American bunch. But he got a karate bite belt while he was in special forces. You know, but that was one thing that really got me interested in some of this stuff for history and the military tradition side um, just, you know, how we value uh, in some societies, martial arts being at the forefront of, you know, not person self-defense of the citizenry as much as like, okay, uh, we're going to teach our, our military units. Uh, we see the value in this. And, but, um, you you see a lot of pairing with judo and karate or Japanese jujitsu and karate for, um, you know, 
I guess just striking and grappling. I, you know, I'm not just kind of in my observation there. Um, did you, you did you do have you uh, done anything other than Japanese jiu-jitsu and Brazilian jiu-jitsu martial arts? So I've done. I did karate up to brown belt. Uh, when I first moved out to British Columbia, like I said, there was no jujitsu around. So I didn't join anybody else's jujitsu club. Um, there was a, a karate club, a local karate club. So I went there. The guys were super awesome. And uh, we started cross training. So I was doing karate and they were doing jujitsu with me. And as um, things moved along, I had more non-karate people coming to do jujitsu and then I just kind of stayed with the jujitsu side and that's how my school started. Um, but besides doing the, uh, besides doing karate, I did a little bit of Taekwondo, um, but that's been about it. So. Let me ask you this. Um, you know, one thing that's fascinating talking, like, I mean, you were talking about, I think you maybe said you opened your school. When did you say you opened your school? 85? 1992. 92. Okay, so I was five years old. <laughs> right, whatever you said. You were talking about some stuff before I was born. I was born in 87. But uh, that's valuable to me as a, a martial arts guy, but a, a historian too, is like uh, you have you've been through, like I was talking about the dial-up to the AI. It's like you've been through some significant cultural changes in martial arts, you know, like um, from – you know, the first UFC, what was that? 93. Um, so, you know, you're, you're in martial arts, UFC comes in, then an explosion, you know, you get to the, the Forrest Griffin, Stefan Bonner, uh, rest in peace era, right? Where spike, and then you go to Fox and then you go to ESPN. And now it's, it's like an, a pastime, right? It's like a, a national sport. But then, you know, you get this uh, popularity of jiu-jitsu. Um, what was it like being a Japanese jiu-jitsu guy going through, uh, like, all of those cultural changes? Because I have seen just in my limited experience and have not been, you know, been focused on not being that way myself. But, like, say, I mean, you get a jiu-jitsu guy that's like a in Brazilian jiu-jitsu guy. Let me clarify clarify, right? Uh, it's like, ah, Japanese jiu-jitsu doesn't work. It's, you know. I've I've heard that I've seen it and but I'm also like, oh hey coach, when's your Japanese jiu-jitsu camp? I'll be there, you know. Like I've sought it out, but I do see these stereotypes and have never really got to talk with anybody about them. You know, like have you seen some of that? Yeah, I think um, you know I I've, I've been doing camps for quite some time, and I have you know friends that are doing BJJ and and things like that and. You know, my experience is that, um, well, one, moving to British Columbia, there wasn't a lot of Japanese jiu-jitsu to begin with. So when Brazilian jiu-jitsu came along, there were a lot of Brazilian jiu-jitsu schools. That was kind of, you know, the thing. Um, but I had a fairly good reputation in our town and our school, you know, survived and grew. But yeah, there is... Um, you know, like I said, having camps and stuff and um, just found that, you know, if you're a BJJ guy, you didn't go to Japanese jiu-jitsu camps or you didn't, you know, train on that side or whatnot. It seemed to be, you know, maybe one-sided, like we would go and do BJJ seminars or things like that, um, but it was never, you know, the other way around. And I think that's changing a little bit. And thanks to guys like Ari, um, where it's um, it's just jujitsu, right? No... I, I had to clarify a second ago, right? Like I'm that camp. Like I was like, oh, I mean, I mean Brazilian jujitsu. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, even you know, like uh, in my research, like uh, oh man, it was well. Judo had been established for a minute before anybody called it anything other than Kano jujitsu. Everybody called it Kano jujitsu. That was like the first ten years of the art. Right. That was the only way it was referred to. And, um, like, I remember uh, when I was writing my thesis, my thesis chair, Dr. Dykema, was like, you're going to have to insert a couple of pages to really delineate out pre-judo jiu-jitsu. I had a chapter on just Japanese jiu-jitsu, judo, and then that diffusing out, right? 
And um, he's like, you're going to like all the different spellings when it started coming to the United States. It's spelled Jiu-Jitsu. Like he's going and he's yeah. like, but, but then here it only seems to be spelled this way before this time. It, but I did. I had to work in like a few pages about just the linguistics of what we're talking about, you know, and, and when it did start to westernize and uh, what that was like uh, for the, you know, and the confusions, really, because it, it, I mean, he was reading his story and he was kind of confused about all of it. You know, it's like why I had to clarify. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely been a great influence for myself. And, um, you know, I was... I don't know, at eighth degree black belt when I started doing BJJ as a white belt. And um, and I got no problem with that. I had no problem putting a white belt on and getting on the mat. And even though I'd been doing, you know, jujitsu for close to 40 years at the time, you know, it, it was, there was no ego. It was about learning and learning something new and meeting new people and, you know, learning from them. So, um you know, for me, it was just about really expanding my own knowledge. And, and since that time, and, you know, with Ari, and, you know, I, I know other people who have done the same thing, and Japanese jiu-jitsu guys that are doing BJJ, and now it's, you know, trying to bring them both together. So how, for myself, how can I integrate the BJJ into my Japanese jiu-jitsu and have it kind of seamless a little bit. So when we're talking about, you know, those after throw techniques or after throw controls and things like that is how can I, I flow the BJJ techniques into those uh, pieces of my Japanese jujitsu. Well, yeah, you know, I'll say, you know, I was talking about stereotypes, but like one thing that drew me to, to like to study other arts was, was like, now I'm, I'm hearing about these stereotypes, like, BJJ guys suck at takedowns and damn it. I was one of those guys when I heard about it, you know, but like I would, I would hear and see things like that. And then I would look over here and see Ari doing these sick wrist throws and stuff, you know, or just like judo techniques or you're looking, I mean, an Aikido or whatever. Hicks and Gracie has an Aikido and a judo black belt, you know, and I would see these things. And I'm like, Oh, well that's these places have the takedowns. Obviously, these articles say that the, the jiu-jitsu guys on the takedowns and damn it everybody i was talking to had like a crappy single and double in like 2007 you know and it was like oh man that, I, I just talked to this high school wrestler who said not to do that you know like it we didn't have high school wrestling even when i the they sanctioned that in my state in 2009 i started training in 06 so I, you know, I started branching out into other martial arts. You, you said a term I've only ever heard my coach say too a minute ago. You said stand-up jiu-jitsu, right? It, it, just talking about like, yeah, we start from standing. But the biggest stereotype in jiu-jitsu is like, I'm going to sit down and start on our knees, you know, slap bump. We're just already there. And, and you do lose an element of realism. Like when you're talking about the, the grabs and the holds and in the striking too, it's like, yeah, oh, you mean like oh things that will help a jiu-jitsu guy Brazilian jiu-jitsu guy be able to defend himself I mean I, re I remember going and watching Ari's black belt test and uh that he did with uh Keith Owen and probably 90 percent of it was Japanese jiu-jitsu a stand-up jiu-jitsu right so I think you expect to go see a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt grading and it's going to be all ground uh, 90% of it was stand-up stuff. Mm -hmm. So that was really, you know, cool to see. And I think where that aspect of it's just jujitsu, right? doesn't matter if it's on the ground or standing up, it's jujitsu. Poor American jujitsu or Japanese jujitsu or Brazilian jujitsu. Like, cause that's another big, uh, argument like, uh, right. you know, the Daisy fresh guys and then you do put whatever you want on your matted wall. I will do the same. But it's like, oh, American jiu-jitsu. And, and I mean, I've even heard like uh, the Hibero brothers uh, who are Brazilian be like, oh, well, this stuff's going over here in California right now. This is this American jiu-jitsu. I heard them say it. But um, it, those just seem to be arguments that what is that doing for the progress of what we're talking about? You know, like it, it's, uh, it's uh, I don't know, a lot of these stereotypes, I think, come from like a place of ego uh, in a negative sense or, you know, squabbling or trying to be better than one martial art like almost like that it, 
it's almost like that original thesis of the UFC kind of permeated in the culture, like, oh, my martial arts are better than yours. But it's really like, oh, man, like synthesis. That's the best thing uh, for me. It's like if I could synthesize everything that I'm doing and, and with all of these styles, that would that would be a better product, I would think. And, I mean, you were talking about that earlier. Yeah, I mean, like I said, for me, it's being able to provide the service to my students and having the best, you know, not the best martial art, but just the best product that I can provide my students with. So, you know, if we only focus on one aspect, then they're missing out on a whole other aspect. And I think if you're talking about being able to defend yourself, you got to be able to defend yourself standing. You got to be able to defend yourself on the ground, you know, wherever you, you know, striking. So how do you build kind of something that is, you know, going to be a good product for, you know, your students. And, and to me, that's, you know, the end goal is to provide the best product to my students as possible. Mm -hmm. Now that, um, that is it. And, you know, I even have been getting, like when I was coming up through the colored belts in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, like I, I was competing a lot in Jiu-Jitsu. I did fought a little bit earlier on and then got into competing in Jiu-Jitsu as, as I was getting into my 20s. But, and I mean, I stayed with that. I was doing MMA and striking, but man, so many of my students do one or the other and some do both. But it's, uh, you know, I look at that and I'm like, no, I want you to be able to defend yourself, but you only want to learn how to fight these trained people grabbing your gi lapel right like i can't even i cannot even give away a striking class to you or i can't you know or whatever the vice versa like uh, my kickboxers that do just striking i'm like i hope you guys don't get taken down you know and in and, and trying to teach a class to people that's like okay i know some of y'all are here for fitness but also you in your minds you're, you're here for some self-defense almost everybody i talk to but then they'll be kind of one-sided and just want to do kickboxing a couple of times a week and think everything will be okay. And, uh, and you know, it's just like, yeah, the, the thing about, I think, that gets lost in some of the MMA and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu scene is like, okay, you know, but what if they don't try to do the knee in the center method to open your guard? Like, what if they're just dropping elbows on your skull? Right. You know, and that's like a ground and pound or you got sucker punched or like it's two people on you, you know, and I'm not saying jujitsu MMA can't um, serve as a tool. I think if synthesized in the right way, um, it could be beneficial. But I do think there's a lot of closed mindedness or just like a, a cultural way of looking at things like I was pointing this out to. This guy's here uh, just before we started podcasting. We we're gonna pull up a martial arts school on Facebook. I was gonna show him this this thing this guy was doing for white belt classes, right? And when the category is like, oh yeah, this guy's jujitsu school, and it said martial arts school, right? So there's actually a like a n the algorithms do not even acknowledge anything other than martial arts. There is no jujitsu category. There is no judo category. There's it's martial arts. That's what we do. But my martial arts are better than yours. It just like gets into this weird um, circular uh, dance sometimes. And I think until maybe people get old enough uh, that they stop thinking that way. You know, you know like for me, um, probably, I'd probably have about 150, 160 students right now. Um, but probably 100 of those are kids. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, a lot of parents don't bring their kids in for the self-defense value of what martial arts are all about. It's all the other byproduct benefits of training. Right. So, you know, at some point, is it which martial art is best? It's, you know, what is the benefit to the parents and the kids and, you know, that are coming in? I think, Adults can make their own decision on what it is that they're, you know, they're looking for and kind of like going and buying a car, you know, I, I want safety. I want a minivan. I want, you know, I got a big family. Don't try and sell them a Corvette. Um, you know, what is it that they're, you know, that they're looking for and, and what, 
I'm teaching might not be what they're looking for. They might be looking for something totally different and that's okay. And, um, you know, or what I am teaching is what they're looking for. And, and that's great as well. Right. I, I, you can't be everything to everybody. And I think you got to stay true, you know, to what it is that you're teaching and, and whatnot. Um, because I think if you try and be everything to everybody, that's where you're going to get so watered down that now you have no, you know, base to operate from. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good point. Um, so yeah, your school right now, uh, sounds like it's doing great. Uh, that's a hundred kids is awesome. Um, even, you know, like I, I didn't even do kids for when I first got going, right? First couple of years, I was just doing adults and had like 40 adults, you know, uh, but, but a few years in. Um, but man, what, uh, you know, so was uh, about to be 2023. And I, I our building now is uh, like 8,000 square foot, but that was a doubling of size that we uh, went through three weeks before the pandemic began. We, we literally, we remodeled this thing for about five weeks. You know, it was, a, it was a, we were crowded and it doubled our space, but then the pandemic sets in and it's like, and I know you guys had different, you know, I talked with uh, uh, Ari about this and uh, Stefan Kestine and just like some, some different guys from your area. Um, but man, pandemic, uncertain time, shut us down for six weeks and then we were back in mask um and then had some other days where we had to cancel because instructors and change things but i know um you guys i feel like had um a little more stringent uh regulations than the southern united states had or than even our country the united than, than we had been in comparison what was the pandemic like for your school like what could you tell us about that? What did you go through? Where are you at now? So we're back to full operations, um, you know, or what I would say normal operations, I guess. But when the pandemic hit, yeah, we were shut down. I think like most people probably, you know, I think we we're shut down two, three months. Um, and then social distancing. So how do you do jujitsu with social distancing? Um, you know, so for our jujitsu style, like we said before, we have striking and things like that. So, uh, you know, I'd done a little bit of weapons and karate and things. So, you know, we were able to kind of come back, have our little two meter by two meter boxes on the mat and everybody had to stay in their own, you know, squares and no spectators or anything. So we were able to kind of get back on the mat and uh, have our students here. We did a bunch of uh, Facebook Live kind of uh, classes as well. And um, eventually we were able to kind of get back to it and rebounded really well. Um, we've recuperated everything we lost over the pandemic and and then some. So uh, so we've, we've bounced back really well. Um, about how long have you guys been back to where you are now, normal? Uh, what's it been? A year, year and a half. Okay, yeah. What were some of the? This again, you know, I'm 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 in the United States, and I'm in a part of the United States that. Um, well, I mean, they broke off of the country once, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, which you know, I love I'm a, I love going into the Civil War and reminding people that, you know, the reasons that it was fought is a lot of people have seemed to forgotten. But, um, you know, what were your regulations like? Like, what, like you, you own a school, this thing that has ne never happened really and in, in our lifetimes happens, you know, so compared to the Spanish flu uh, before that, like 100 years ago. Um, uncertainty, you own a school, what's, what, what are they people telling you to do? Like, what were the regulations like three months in? So, so we, you know, hand washing masks social distancing um you know normally i have 30 kids on the mat we were down to 11 because they all had to be in their individual spots um when we were able to have contact basically it was like this is your partner and that's the only person you're going to train with until this kind of changes right and making sure that you are comfortable with your partner and what their activities outside of the dojo were and 
you know, I, I think we were able to um, fend, like we didn't have any major COVID cases in our school. Um, we shortened the amount of time the classes were from an hour to 45 minutes so that we could get a, a cleaning in between, you know, every class, no parents in the school. Uh, that was one of the other pieces is, you know, vaccinated and not vaccinated. Um, being a police officer and, you know, with the, with the RCMP, the other part is, you know, for me is paying attention to schools because if I step out and I do something um, outside of my regular work, so outside of the RCMP, um, I'm still can be sanctioned. So you know, if I was operating my dojo sort of underground, not paying attention to any of the, uh, you know, the health restrictions and those kind of things and something happens, then I'm going to suffer the consequences within my regular job. And I think I had some, not many, a few parents that didn't understand that and really were challenging in the sense that, you know, you need to think for yourself and not pay attention to these rules and all that kind of stuff. And it was kind of like, you know what, this is just the way it's going to be. It's, you know, one, my school to my livelihood, my job that's on the line if something happens. And, um, you know, unfortunately that's the way it's going to be. And we have a very good relationship with all of our parents and, um, I, I only had grief from maybe one or two, and and that was about all. Yeah, we really, I mean, that was like the a component of it is just like it was like a PR thing, you know, like um, you didn't want to do anything to make anybody mad. You were trying to, I mean, we were really trying to do exactly what you're saying: clean between classes, uh, check temperatures, uh, extra sanitizers. Yeah, just everything we could do. We even had the gym like professionally disinfected. These people came with these big things, sprayed everything down, um, and you know it was just like. But it was a time of uncertainty, and but it, it's like I thought about it quite a bit. It's like we were in an area. It's like literally the sheriff and all these people were like, "Y'all do what you want. We're not going to do anything, even if the government told us to. We wouldn't." Like that was the sentiment, and, and it was just kind of like. Okay, so that's where the government's at. That's where the local government's at. But then, too, you would have citizens that were like, I mean, crucifying people on church, uh, on Facebook for going to church, no pun intended. You know, yeah. like, I mean, it was like I saw churches get attacked more than any any other entity. And I was sitting back being like, oh, man, like we got like as many people showing up as that church. And we stopped doing spectators too, but man, it was just like trying to manage the the public perception. Let everybody know that yeah, hey, this is how I make like my whole like how I take care of my family and everything. And I've we put a lot of thought into it. That's all we do every day is try and think about yeah. how we're going to get through this. You know, we had a dance studio here that uh, just got crucified because they were doing everything they were supposed to be doing and they had a COVID case go through and a whole bunch of kids got COVID and some of the instructors got COVID and uh, same thing. Facebook just blasted the owner to the point where they don't have a dance studio anymore. They, they weren't able to sustain through the, through the pandemic. And like you say, but from that public perception and everything, right. Well, hats off to us for um, being able to. Uh, I I talked to somebody at Century and they said this, and I've heard I've heard this from a few people, and I'm like, okay, well, where your where's your data? But I've heard thirty and forty percent numerous times, numerous places about the number. Uh, if you said uh, the percentage of the martial arts industry that is no longer like they closed, and you, you got to think like how many people are running academy that you know they have a they have a 40 hour week job and it's it's not their livelihood probably not even you know they're just paying the rent on the space and they get to train and it's it's happy for everybody but then you hit yeah. a major irregularity like that and it's like it's over for those people 
Um, yeah. Absolutely. We've, I, we've had a, a couple here in Chilliwack and a couple of my own students, because I have um, students that operate schools in other parts of Canada and whatnot, and they've had to shut down. So, yeah, it, it was, you know, difficult in some communities. Yeah. Um, so, like you mentioned, with your job, uh, a couple of questions about that. Um, so let's say that was you. You were the dance school owner, you know, like it, it was your jujitsu school. Same thing, you know, a couple instructors got it, whatever. You got it. Some of the kids got it. Um, how would your how would your job have handled that? You mentioned being sanctioned. Is that like a fine? Is that, um, hey, will you? Yeah, they, so they have what's called a, a code of conduct. And, you know, potentially they would have launched an investigation, you know, what is it? How are you operating? You know, uh, are you operating within the guidelines or within the health guidelines? And if they find that, you know, you're operating outside of those guidelines, meaning you're just allowing anybody in and no cleaning and, you know, and uh, yeah, it could have been, you know, a fine or a couple of days suspension or it's kind of hard to, hard to tell. Um, yeah. It's just cause it's a new thing, you know, like, yeah. Yeah, uh, not uh, that's I think you know what caught everybody is just what do we do? How do we really address the scale of this thing? It's like there's no there were really no contingencies in place for you know like the government asking you to close your business, um, and you know I saw a lot of uncertainty and uh, fortunately we were if anything we stopped doing spectators and still don't but. I, I, we don't have the room even with our size with we will run like two or three classes at once so like right. by the time all those students are in there we're we're at occupancy for the most part you know yeah we're not allowing any parents in or spectators in right now uh either mostly with the kids classes um and i just found the other benefit was that the kids pay attention more <laughs> is you know they're not distracted by the parents who are chit-chatting or on their phone or they've got a sibling that is you know sitting on the side playing on their ipad or you know with their little hot wheels and stuff and i just find that the kids pay attention a lot more uh, so that's kind of been a, a positive uh, outcome to the pandemic yeah you know um we started yeah, you, know, you mentioned doing Zoom classes. We did that in the beginning, but then um, we got set up with these uh, Mevo live streaming cameras. It came with like a pack of three of them, um, and we got them hardwired in, and we can live stream the classes now from overhead, and we do that in our member group on Facebook. And now, like, man, the parents are – that group is so much more engaged. I have about 500 members in the member group. But it's his parents, some of them are former members and stuff, but we went from like we'd post in there and, you know, some people might see it, the adult members, but now since all the parents are coming to that group where we stream and they're they're commenting on little Johnny's, oh, and Cora's Matt chat, my wife, she's talking to the kids and it just the parents are engaging and now when we share information in there, they see it. <laughs> Right. And, um, you know, and we're sharing that same information on on our main social media page or sending out an email. So it just it gives us a little more coverage. It's been nice um, in that regard of, uh, you know, it's, I think a byproduct of not having spectators. And um, but that's something that I mean, I, a lot of uh, gyms in different uh, schools are, are streaming their classes. But that's definitely a leap we made because of the pandemic, you know. I think it really forced people to kind of look at their operations and be able to shift and make the best of a bad situation. Right. And I know we did kind of the same thing. We're not right now. Um, obviously it takes time and effort and, you know, still having a, uh, a 40 hour a week job and teaching full time. So, but um, this is my, hopefully my last year of work. I've been with the RCMP for 34 years. I start my 35th year on the 3rd of January. Um, so looking to retire at the beginning of 2024, and then it'll just be running the dojo um, and jujitsu full-time after that. 
Nice. Yeah, that's a uh, man. Tw- uh, thirty-five years. That's a long time. I'm thirty-five years old. There you go. <laughs> long time to do something. Anything, you know. Um, yeah. Because I mean, you hear like I know so many people that they were in the military for twenty years and then they weren't. Yeah, that was the time that they could retire. Um, Thirty years for a teacher is usually the the standard bag. And I know uh, for us, you know, you got into your sixties uh, for Social Security or whatever. It just depends on when you were born. But uh, man, that's um, that's a lifetime. You know, thirty five years is uh, yeah, it's, it's a long time to do anything. So uh, props. Uh, so this your full time job is uh, RCMP. Is that what you said? Yeah, so I work for the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. I'm a staff sergeant, and I work at our provincial training academy. And my role there is that I look after all our use of force programs and firearms programs. So I have about 60 instructors that uh, report up through myself. And um, yeah, that's kind of what I look after. When you say mounted patrol, like you're talking like horseback is... Is that still how they're doing it? I'm sorry, what was that? When you when you say mounted patrol, are you talking like oh. horseback? Like, no, we don't we don't do that anymore. Man, thought you yeah. were like a cavalry officer or something for a second. Yeah, no, <laughs> no. But yeah, yeah, I've seen I've seen that in y'all's uh, like what uh, the movie The Untouchables with uh, Kevin Costner. I don't know if you ever seen it. There's the scene across the bridge at the mounted. Yep. Yeah, the red uniform and the Stetson hat and yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, I could see, you know, probably, uh, evolve with the times and not get, not get around on a horseback. It'd be, I mean, you could still, some of that goes on. I know in like New York city and different, like some cities where that's probably high traffic, uh, still viable. Yep. Um, yep. so, uh, and how did you get involved, um, with law enforcement, but particularly with like the role you're in now, that's very interesting with like, um, use of force cases uh is it just your, your sort of your martial arts expertise kind of made you the right guy for that or so when i was uh 18 19 years old i was teaching at the school that we um went to at the time and one of the fathers was an rcmp member and so we kind of had that um chat that maybe a lot of adults and teens have what are you going to do with your life steve and i said well i'm going to teach jujitsu and so he asked, uh, you know, if I had any thoughts of ever being a police officer and went home, talked to my parents about it and applied and off we went. And then in uh, 2000, so I got into the RCMP in 1989 and then around 1999, I wanted to do some use of force training with my colleagues, uh, but I needed a certain course. And so I, I took that, um, all the public and police safety instructor course. So I took the course and eventually the person that was in charge of training at my department, um, moved along and I took over his position. So in 2001 is where I went into the, um, training part of my career. And so I was an instructor. And then the Provincial Training Academy was starting up a new use of force program. Uh, I knew the person that was looking after it. So I transferred over to that, um, to the academy and moved up through the ranks as an instructor and then a supervisor and a manager and now a, a program manager. And so I've been able to kind of, like you say, put my jujitsu and my policing career um, together and uh, love my job. And like I say, the only reason that I retire is because I'm kind of tired of working 16 hours a day. <laughs> yeah, that, that man, but that man uh, more than anything is why I got out of teaching college. Like my gym is very successful. I'm not the only person to behind that success, my wife, and we have so many great assistants that, that help. But man, I was getting up early. Like what you're saying, I get up at four, work out, go get a second coffee on my way to the college, which was a 30 minute drive. I would teach and stay there until about one o'clock and then I would come back and I was so wound up, not from the two coffees partially, but 
that like you know man when i was at the gym before that i would you know go teach morning class maybe noon class on maybe i'd teach twice that day and then i would take a nap you know like or i would take a nap after morning or afternoon class before i go in the evening and man just like when i started at university and there, there was no naps like i was just so wound up i didn't take a nap for like three years <laughs> You know, and man, it's got to the point where the gym just kept growing and growing and growing. And then we moved to this spot and then the pandemic happened. And but then till we kept growing after the pandemic and I was just like uh, spending five and a half hours driving to this place. And <coughs> I mean, you mentioned how many hours you teach martial arts. That's about similar for me. And I'm like, I can no, I can just no longer justify it. I mean, I listen to 100 books a year sitting in the car for that long but i couldn't justify doing that for you know what i was making or just right. how like weird you know higher education was getting too. like um it, our funding model for like the people that want to get loans or high school students that are coming it, it's it's gotten to a point where if you are a professor it's uh it's um almost like being a high school teacher was when I decided to not be a high school teacher. It's like, yeah, write your stuff on the board. Here's your syllabus. Teach this uh, and don't do anything else. And I'm like, well, you guys don't do history. You don't know anything about history. And the people I know that teach history teach it this way. This guy, you know, across the board. And like a lot of that I was everybody was dropping. Enrollments were dropping because of the pandemic. You know, so like the funding model, which was already kind of had been changed, was weird. It's like uh, this, uh, you know, made for a tense situation in our state. A lot of uh, I've we've had high schools consolidate in my lifetime, but we're seeing now colleges consolidate mm. across our state and across our region in in ways that it's like pretty much, you know, every um, all of the colleges or the community colleges lower level or some of the four year institutions are getting bought out by the larger entities. You know, we have two really large uh, colleges that they are 80 percent of education in the state now, you know. Wow. So um, but a lot of weird stuff with that, man, just like the gym was uh, I felt like where through stuff like this and it, the podcast, I can, I think, feel as much fulfillment, do things I want, and st still even do things I want with history through the podcast, which is, um, you know, it's just like a, if, if teaching is, uh, is viable of, a, you know, a livelihood is these other things I have going on, I would definitely still do it. But it got to the point where uh, I know, man, I know a lot of people that have gotten out of education. It's kind of a strange time. So actually my mentor is a jiu-jitsu black belt, one of our first. Um, he's he's taught the whole time I knew him, and he got out this last year, moved to Washington, D.C., doesn't teach anymore, taught for 20 years, and um, just got burned out and does something else now, moved moved all the way across the country, man. It's uh, But, uh, you know, that's, uh, you know, things change. So uh, I think you got to keep having fun at what you're doing. Right. Exactly. So, yeah, if I wasn't, if I wasn't having fun at work, then I, you know, I've got enough service that I could have retired, you know, nine years ago, but I, I enjoy my job. I have a great job. I, you know, the guys that I work with um, and the dojo, you know, as well. And I think, you know, I've met some guys that have opened schools a huge commitment and you know you don't open a school to teach for a couple of years right like you open a school because it's you know something you want to do and it's going to be a long-term commitment because you have so many people that depend on you or like students that depend on you or you know they get to be not quite like family but definitely you have a huge impact on these people's lives and to just kind of fold it because you don't feel like doing it anymore, I think is a, you know, is a big thing. So, well, man, um, two another thing, Steve, uh, we can kind of kind of wrap it up here. But uh, I, one thing I do appreciate a lot, and just kind of getting to know more about uh, the goal of the podcast, kind of fill in some blanks. Um, but man, we need more people like you 
like this guy that I mentioned on the podcast with Ari, that's the chief of police and one of our Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu brown belts, judo, fourth degree, Aikido, six days, a lifelong martial artist, you know, and he does law enforcement training, you know, and it's Ari, like with what he's doing with Invictus. And I mean, I've seen you also um, actively, you know, moving that narrative along. And um, I think that it's a very important narrative. I, I you know, my community, we uh, we just had defensive tactics training here. Uh, uh, what was it uh, last last week? Like right after Christmas, um, uh, and we try and just be a patron of that stuff because, man, I want more than anything the officers to be able to have some of the stuff that we have to be able yeah. to stay composed, to be able to have something that will help them be maybe a little more in shape or. Um, a method where, you know, hey, I can I can control this person. I won't have to tase them or maybe they have to tase them instead of shoot them. You know, just like, man, when you when you can go hands on, uh, I just think that that's another level. Like, why? You know, why would you not want that pillar uh, along with uh, firearms and, uh, you, you know, all the other tools on the belt? You know, and I, I just I'm happy to be doing what I do in a time where there's such a strong narrative around, um, the need for that, you know, and I'm, uh, you know, again, grateful for people like you and Ari that are much more involved in me. I, you know, I can kind of host and open my doors, but I'm, I'm not involved in law enforcement and, and busy enough. I probably won't be, but I definitely, um, you know, like I want my gym to be a place and it is where those, those guys come and do their training often. Yeah. Well, no, that's all. That's, that's just as important as to have people that are supportive that way, even if they're not actively involved is having them supportive on the periphery is, you know, super important as well. So thanks for that. Yeah. Um, okay. So um, you have social media website. If anybody wants to check you out or give you a follow YouTube. Anything yeah. So I'm on Facebook, uh, Steve Hisco. I'm on Instagram, uh, Sensei Hisco. Um, I also have our, um, PRTC police jujitsu club is on there, uh, as well. Uh, we've got a YouTube channel, Hisco jujitsu on, on YouTube. We got a whole bunch of our, uh, can techniques and stuff on there as well. If anybody wants to kind of see what we're up to and, but, um, yeah, not a hard person to find on social media. Excellent. Well, uh, Steve, again, um, thanks for what you're doing. Um, I appreciate your time today. Uh, again, I've been wanting to talk to you for a while and just finally reached out. And I, I really uh, am grateful for you taking taking a minute and making it happen. Uh, it's been awesome. Well, thanks, Brian. I'm super happy to do this and uh, and meet you and uh, look forward to chatting again sometime in the future. And We'll have to so, do it again someday. For sure. Yeah, right on. Have a great day. You too, man. See you.